Well, that's the question that we've been asking for these weeks is, what would Jesus say to the church? Uh, We're using as a framework for that question uh, two chapters in the Bible, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as we talked about at the beginning of this series, um, John, uh, one of the apostles, uh, in AD 94 was taken to the island of Patmos because he was preaching the gospel and always causing trouble, and they just wanted to get him out of the way. So they put him on the island of Patmos to uh, break marble in the marble quarry. While he was there, they didn't expect this, while he was there, he received a vision from God. And in that vision, Jesus Christ spoke to him, and he said, this is what I want to say to the churches. And then he spoke about seven specific churches, and each one of them, he had a message. And in each message, there was a message of condemnation, you're doing something wrong, a message of correction, here's how you can fix it, and then a message of commendation. Here's what is so blessed about you. Here's what is so good. Here's what God is doing among you, and I'm really thankful for you. Now, what's interesting about these seven churches is that that seems like old history. I mean, that was 1,900 years ago. But what's interesting when Jesus spoke these words is that he was speaking really on three levels. The first level was a very practical level. In other words, I'm speaking to the seven churches in AD 100 right now. And here's what I want to say to those seven churches. And then besides the practical level, he said, I want to speak also prophetically. And so to those seven churches, I'm talking about their ancestors, the churches that will be on the planet in AD 500, in AD 1000, in AD 1500, in AD 2000. And 14. I want to give my message to those churches as well. So it's a prophetic message. And then finally, it's a very personal message. In other words, Jesus is speaking not only to the church at Sardis, that's the church we're looking at today, but he's speaking to Hope Covenant Church. And even more specifically, he's speaking to you and to me. This is a letter from God to you. So you've got mail, and we're going to unwrap that mail this morning and uh, open the Word of God together. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father, um, we pray now that uh, you would anoint <clears throat> your servant. And I pray, Father, that as you already have, you would anoint the Word of God once again and allow that Word to come alive among us. Father, earlier this morning we talked about uh, our eyes were open to see Jesus and that our hearts were burning within us. That is my prayer during this message, that the eyes of your children would be open and that our hearts would burn within us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. The church at Sardis. Uh, This is one of the least known churches in Asia Minor. Very fascinating group of Christ followers. And we're going to be looking at that in just a moment. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry for 33 years. Every time I think of that, it kind of shocks me. But 33 years, in those 33 years, I've had the privilege of doing 250 weddings. And also during that same time, I've had the honor, and yes, it is an honor, to do over 200 funerals and memorial services. And what's interesting is I have noted over these years... Uh, Starting in 1978, when I began as a pastor, I've noticed a dramatic change in funerals. It used to be almost every funeral was the same. 
It was done in a church, not a funeral home. It was usually, it had a casket present, and many times the casket was open. Today, that's radically different. Today, nine out of ten funerals that I do are um, memorial services, and because of cremation. Now, that's a whole different thing. There's and I, I know you already know this, but just to say it out loud, there's absolutely no problem with cremation in the Bible, okay? The reason being is that our bodies are going to be turned to dust one way or the other. Either we do it now or we do it later, right? But the idea is in the resurrection, all of those molecules God will take up and he'll put get back with our spirit and we'll have this brand new body and it'll be amazing. But I've seen all these changes over the years at funerals. And one thing that used to kind of make me creep out a little bit at funerals was as the pastor, I was always to stand at the head of the casket and then the the congregation would come forward and they would look at the body and maybe they would say something or offer a prayer. Certainly a lot of crying and sadness around that you would expect. But it always kind of made me feel weird when somebody would come up and they'd say, oh, Mrs. Jones looks so real. And I always wanted to say, Mrs. Jones isn't real. You know, you know that's a shell. That's a body. That's a tent. The Bible calls it a tent. Mrs. Jones is up there. You know, don't get this confused. She may look real, but she's not, okay? She's not. In a few minutes, she's going to be under the earth. Mrs. Jones is up there. That's what God said to the church at Sardis. He said, you look wonderful. You look religious. You look fabulous. You look alive. You look vibrant. But underneath, you are dead. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first six verses. Uh, this is one of the shortest messages uh, to the churches of Asia. And um, as we read this, I always want to take this opportunity to say to you what? Read your Bibles, okay? Um, uh, you don't have to believe me. Read your Bibles. It's amazing what God has written in this book. It's um, inspired. It's inerrant. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Read your Bibles. You'll find all kinds of things for life and living and holiness in your Bible. So if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 3, if you have your iPads or your iPhones, uh, whatever, don't play uh, Scrabble or, or Words with Friends, honey. Uh, uh, we, we don't do that. We go to the Bible, right? Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. And uh, this, uh, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is the Word of God. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. Here, uh, 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 Jesus is talking about there's always a remnant no matter how bad things get in the world or in a church, there's always a remnant of those who are faithful. That's what he's talking about. They will walk with me in white. Isn't that beautiful? For they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, 
but I will announce before my Father and his angels, listen to this, that they are mine. Won't that be awesome? When Jesus is announcing to God and the angels, hey, that one right there, that one's mine. This one right down here, this one's mine. Don't, won't that be awesome one day when Jesus points to you? I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. That is God's letter to the church at Sardis and God's letter to Hope Covenant Church in 2014. So let's look at this um, amazing place called Sardis. So let's take a look at the map. And uh, you'll see there Sardis right in the middle. And uh, it's about no church is more than about 65 miles away from another church. So they're all in fairly short distance, although on foot it's not short, right? So all of these churches and what they were, especially the uh, inland churches, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, were all part of a major trade route. So Sardis had become a very wealthy city because of trade, and they were especially uh, very um, uh, noted for trading in wool. They had a lot of sheep and a lot of wool, and they became a very wealthy city by treating, uh, by uh, being on this trade route. But not only were they um, on this trade route and, and wealthy because of that, there was another reason that they were wealthy. About 500 years uh, before uh, John wrote this letter, uh, 500 B.C., um, there had been, uh, this city, Sardis, had been the capital of an old kingdom by the name of Lydia. And uh, this Lydia is where there was a king by the name of King Croesus. Okay, anybody heard of King Croesus? Okay, nobody? Okay, one. What are you, going to seminary? Oh, yes, you are going to seminary. Yeah, so King Croesus. Okay, but King Croesus, uh, most of you didn't hear that name, but you would have remembered him by another name, King Midas. Okay, so uh, this was known as a very wealthy city, 500 BC, and uh, uh, the reason they were so wealthy, because of the trade route, for one thing, the wool and all of the trading, but the other reason was there was this river, let me get the name of that river, uh, the river Pactolus, that flowed right through the middle of the city, and in that river was, it was one of the most richest gold-bearing rivers in the world at that time. So, Alyssa, let's say you want to go shopping, Right? So you walk out in Lydia, and you look around and say, okay, where's my gold pan? And you lean over, and, like, and you kind of scoop up some gold nuggets, and then go to Marcus Neiman, or whoever they have, Neiman Marcus, or I don't even know, yeah, go to, I go to Target. So you go to one of those places, right? So, so, that's, so the city was enormously wealthy. But not only were they rich, they were also complacent. Let me tell you why they were complacent. This um, uh, city was on a, a, a kind of a cliff, an area 1,500 feet elevation above the landscape. On three sides of this cliff were these, or three sides of the city were sheer cliffs. So it was a perfect military installation. In other words, only one way could an army approach this city. You could see them for miles coming. So they felt like they were absolutely impregnable, impregnable against any kind of attack. They thought, we've got it made. You know, they got very complacent. What happened then in 300 BC under Alexander the Great, and then again a little while later and under Antiochus the Greek, um, both of those armies overwhelmed Sardis. How did they do that? 
by simply with, with ropes shearing up the sides of the cliff. And when they got up there, guess what they found? Absolutely nothing. No guards, no watchmen, no anything. Because everybody felt they were perfectly safe from the enemy. So they had this sense of complacency. And then another thing that happened in 17 AD, uh, now this is after, shortly before, uh, while Jesus was on, uh, on, on the planet. Uh, in 17 AD, there was this tremendous earthquake that just shook uh, Sardis to the ground almost. And so here's what's interesting. Tiberius, who was the king, or the Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius decided, because they were known as such a wealthy, amazing, beautiful, important city, Tiberius, the emperor, paid back Sardis the last five years of taxes. Yeah, I know. You don't know what that means because you've never heard of that in the United States of America. Yeah. Okay, uh, Dwayne, I want to give you back your five last year of taxes because you're having a hard time. See, that doesn't happen in our world, but it happened then. So this amazing city was wealthy beyond compare. They were complacent. And here's the third thing they were. They were religious. Just like Ephesus, uh, uh, just like um, Thyatira last week when Steve preached, there was a multitude of different religions. All religions were welcome. Come on in. We're all good. You know, like the Baha'i faith, we all go to the same place. You know, we all love God. Doesn't matter what you call you. Everything's cool. You know, all these religions, they had all these temples, all these places of worship. They had pro temple prostitutes. They had all the same things that uh, they did in Thyatira. It was a mess, but they were religious. They were religious. They went to church every Sunday. They gave their money. They probably had good youth programs. They had good ministry. They, and everything was going well, including the Christian church. Now, the Christian church that had been established there was not prospering, but it was there. And it was big. And it was religious. And it looked really good. And they had an ornate, by this time, believe it or not, this was the first time that where somebody actually had kind of a church house. Because before that, they were always in... Um, you know, just in homes. But these people, they had so much money. By the way, uh, Sardis, I don't have a coin with me. That's typical. Uh, Sardis was the first place where coins were minted, okay? Not only is that where King Midas is from, first place, so that's how it shows you how wealthy and rich they were. So here we have all this religious activity going on, even in the Christian church. They had all of this complacency and all of this wealth. And into that, Jesus speaks very clearly these ringing words of condemnation. You look like you're alive, but you are dead. You look like you've got it all together, but there's no life within you. God says, this has to change. It has to change. Now let's talk about what it looks like to become a dead or a dying church. When you look at the text, three things just jump out at you. And these are kind of like marks of a dead or a dying church. Because remember, the complaint is, you're dead. Later we'll get to the, uh, the, that's the condemnation. Later we'll get to the commendation about what they were doing good. But at first he says, here's my complaint, you're dead. Symptoms of a dead or dying church, the first symptom is always the same. It's religion without relationship. Religion without relationship. You know exactly what I'm talking about. All of us in our lives have come to times in our lives when we have been going through the formula of faith without a heart of faith. We've been going through the acts of religion without a heart that is tender towards God. Uh, religion is something that is man-made. Religion is something that...
And reaches up to God and said, God, let me show you that I love you and let me show other people how I love you. But Christianity is always God reaching down to man through Jesus Christ and embracing us. It's a relationship, not a religion. Now, we have lots of examples of that in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. Jesus was teaching and he said, well, there's, uh, during this one particular service in the temple, uh, the Pharisees got up to pray. And one Pharisee in particular got up and he had the most beautiful uh, adornment. He had the most beautiful robe and jewelry. He had these gorgeous phylacteries that fell down from his arms, phylacteries from his head. He stood up in the midst of the temple and he raised his hands to God and he started to pray. And it was the most beautiful prayer and the most flowery prayer and the most uh, cogent prayer. It was just amazing how glib and how beautiful his words were. And as he was praying, everybody was just going, wow, what a man of God. He must really be connected to God and he's just praying this prayer. And then while this is going on, there's a guy in the back of the church, a guy probably like you and me, a guy who recognizes that his life isn't all it should be. And in the back of the church, he was saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which do you think Jesus said had a relationship with him? He said, the man that was religious, he doesn't need Jesus. He's got religion. But this man in the back, he said, Lord, mercy, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. God calls us to a relationship with him, an intimate, personal relationship. We can know Jesus. We can experience his life within us. We can be alive inside of us. That's what this text is about. There's another example in the New Testament, one, again, that you're familiar with. So against, in the temple, in the temple, the, the Pharisees, the religious rulers were coming forward and they had these large bags of coins, silver and gold coins. And they had these big copper, uh, they, they were like spittoons, only they were used for offerings. And these big copper bowls and these people would come up with their gold and silver and they would pour them in there and it would make this clanging, clinging sound and everybody would hear that sound and say, oh man, those people are so religious. They give so much. They give so faithful. They must really love God. And, and then while they're doing that, and everybody's noticing them, and they're going, oh, no, not really, you know, not me. And, and while they were doing all of that, uh, a little frail woman comes forward, and she has two small coins, two little mites. They're pieces of wood, really, uh, equivalent to about a half of a penny. And she comes up, and she puts her two little mites. It doesn't make any noise at all. And Jesus said, which one of those is religious, and which one of those has a relationship with the Father? We don't need religion. Religion is man-made. Christ came that we could have a relationship with God that would totally change our lives. The church at Sardis was more focused on religion than they were on a personal relationship with God. And because of that, Jesus said, you're dead. You did. You don't really know what the, you look alive. Like in the book of Jeremiah, remember the people used to go into the church and say, uh, praise to the Lord, praise to the Lord. We're the people of the Lord, the people of the Lord. And Jeremiah said, no, no, you're dead. You're like dead bones. Okay, you're dead. That's not, that's not real. It's not about outward appearance. It's about an inward heart. So we were at um, uh, a church in Georgia a few weeks ago, and um, we were with some relatives of our daughter-in-law, Tina, uh, in Augusta. And again, there's a lot of churches in Georgia, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of good churches. My son and daughter-in-law have found a really good church, a grace-based church there in Vidalia, Georgia. But we were visiting, and we went to church with our hosts, where Sherry and I were staying. And um, so we, and we went to the service, and, and after it was over, uh, our host, uh, what was his name, first name, honey, uh, that we stayed with? Yeah, anyway, 
Harold. So Harold, uh, he's maybe 10 years older than I am, really nice guy, loves the Lord. He told me after, he said, hey, I want to tell you something. He knew I was a pastor. He said, uh, I want to tell you about something that happened last week. It was really exciting. He said, a guy came into our church, <laughs> believe it or not, he said, with shorts and a t-shirt and sandals. And I said, really? You know, re- you know, trying to act shocked, you know, really? And um, and he said, yeah. I said, well, what happened? He said, well, me and some of the other deacons went and talked to him, and we asked him to leave because he wasn't dressed appropriately because this is a holy place. This is, this is where God dwells, and so we need to, you know, dress our, our very best. And I tried to tell him in the best language and the best heart that I could how wrong he was, how unlike Jesus that was, and how, how that, that was religion, and there was no form of that in the gospel but it's about relationship. God doesn't care what you wear to church. God doesn't care if you're wearing sandals. If we didn't allow sandals and shorts in our church, nobody would be here, Jim, except you and me. You know, that's it. You know, we, nothing else, right? We got nothing else. But it's not about religion. It's not about form. It's about the heart. Read Romans 14. Read Romans 15. It's about the heart. What is your heart towards God? So they had all of this religion versus relationship, and Jesus says, no. You've got to have a relationship with me. So that was one of their real issues. That's what a mark of a dead church is, a church that's more uh, concerned about form and religion than they are about relationship. Another mark of a dead or dying church is the absence of struggles. (laughs) This is interesting. Sardis was the only church of the seven where there wasn't some kind of a, a struggle going on inside the church. The Nicolaitans were, you know, raising Cain. Uh, the Jewish uh, people were saying, no, you, it's not about Jesus, it's about being circumcised. And everybody was having a problem. And all the other churches, there were these people, they were fighting over the truth, and Paul kept saying, no, here's the truth, and we've got to fight for the truth. There wasn't any of that in Sardis. There was nobody pushing back because Sardis wasn't pushing. <laughs> Sardis wasn't doing anything. They weren't proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. They weren't, nobody was against them because they were for everybody and everything. Walking into the church at Sardis was like walking into a cemetery. It was peaceful, but because it was peaceful because they were dead. That's what it was like in this church. Inoffensive Christianity. Political correctness. Our adversary doesn't waste his limited resources on those who are already just idling. So there is a wonderful uh, book, one of C.S. Lewis's Hidden Treasures. Uh, it's called Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read Screwtape Letters? It's just a great book. And those of you who have read it will be reminded. So the premise of Screwtape Letters is that Satan, and his name is Screwtape, he's kind of the chief guy, the head guy, and all of his minions, his demons, they all have great names like Glum Glob and stuff like that, really cool names. And, um, and so their job, they're down in hell trying to figure out how do we get these Christians to kind of walk away from Christianity? That was kind of their, the premise of the book. How do we get these believers to not act like believers? How do we get these believers to walk away from God? And so they're talking about different strategies. And Glum Glob comes in and says, now I found a group of believers that uh, they, you know, they say they belong to Jesus, but they don't really do anything. They never really tell anybody. They just kind of sit there and they kind of have a little club. And, and he said, what should we do with them? And Screwtape says, absolutely nothing. Leave them alone, please. Don't stir anything up. 
I mean, this is, the, the, this is the best group that we have representing us. And he's talking about Satan. They're not doing anything. They have the name of Christ, but they don't look anything like it. Please leave them alone. Screwtape says, the best method we have is apathy. If we can get them to not care about their faith, we've won a victory. It's just an amazing little book. You need to, to read that. The absence of struggles. Sardis wasn't being pushed because they weren't pushing. Luke 6.26 says it this way, Woe to you who when all men speak well of you, for that is how the fathers, the fathers treated the false prophets. A true vital church will always be under attack from without and from within. If you're not facing resistance, it's probably because you're not resisting. Another symptom, the third symptom of a dead and dying church is this, a complete focus on the past. We've all been part of a church that has a celebrated past. We don't have. We don't have much of a past at all, so we don't have much to celebrate. But you've all been part of churches that have been around for 50, 75, 100, 150 years, and they have this glorious past celebrating the past. The problem with that is many times Christ followers get so busy looking in the rearview mirror, so busy looking at what we used to be, so busy looking at the glory days when we used hymnals, praise God, and so, you know, looking back at all the good things, having that they, fo they stop focusing on the future. Here's, here's, here's what you need to know about Hope Covenant Church. We, we love our past, and we'll talk about it once in a while. But I'll tell you what, we're focused on the future every single day. We have a prayer time in, our office, in my office before at 8.15. By the way, anybody's welcome to join us. We have six, eight, ten people that go in there. We pray for the service. And we pray for the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And here's what we're praying for. We're praying that someone will come here today that will be transformed by the power of God. We don't care about our past in those moments. We don't care about what happened even last week in those moments. We care about what is the Holy Spirit going to do right now in this group among you to lead you to a deeper relationship with Christ where you experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we care about. That's our vision. Here's the statistics that are very scary. 70% of all Protestant churches, Protestant churches include Evangelical, uh, Episcopalian, uh, Assembly of God, all types of Protestant churches, non-Catholic, and 70% of all Protestant churches never have one conversion on a given year. Not one conversion, 70%. Seven out of 10 churches that you would walk into would not have one conversion in a year. If you're a church over 25 years of age, nine out of 10 churches never have one conversion in a year. What happens? We start getting so complacent, we kind of hit that plateau where, okay, now we've got youth ministry, children's ministry, everything's going good, and we start to oh, this is a word that we all should hate so much, we start to maintain. We start to stabilize. God forbid, forbid that we ever maintain or stabilize, but we should always be pushing up the mountain, just like we did in the early days of this church. In the early days of this church, we would do anything to get somebody to church. We'd pay them, you know. We saw somebody out and say, hey, can I give you five bucks so you come to church? You know, we would do anything, I mean anything, to get somebody to come to our strip mall down there, or when we first moved in this building, we didn't have, uh, we had half of these chairs, and we couldn't even fill up those in one service. When we first, and we said, what can we do to reach one more for Christ? We will always have as our goal the future. We will always have as our goal reaching one more for Christ. The most important person in this church is the next brand new person that walks through those doors. We're always, and that's more important than any of the pastors, especially the pastors. We are focused on reaching one more for Christ. And whenever you start getting satisfied and comfortable and now we've got everything we need, let's just be us, God forbid, because we never want to be a church that is complacent. 
a complete focus on the past. Churches that stress religion instead of relationship, that find themselves without opposition and focus on the past are churches that are dead or dying. I, I like David uh, Everly's summary of those symptoms of a dead or dying church. This is what he says, um, and I'll just read these in a staccato fashion. Uh, live churches are constantly changing. Dead churches don't have to. Live churches have lots of noisy kids. Dead churches are fairly quiet. <laughs> oh, by the way, I just want to insert right there. After the service today, uh, after you've cleaned out the rest of the cookies and you're heading out, before you leave, come back in the sanctuary for a couple of minutes. I just want to invite you to do that. Here's what you'll see. You'll see anywhere from 5 to 25 children between the age of one, Sabina, and a five-year-old doing laps and running all over the church. And they're just kind of running all over. They're bumping into each other. We call them the runners. And they run in here after second service every Sunday. And if that had have happened in my church that I grew up with, that I grew up in, they would have scolded them and yelled at them and said, you children need to behave like you're in a church. And that's not holy to do that. And God would say, would you leave them alone? That's the holiest thing you can be doing is running in church when you're two years old. I can't think of a more holy thing to be doing. We need to be a church that's alive. Live churches move out in faith. Dead churches operate totally by human sight. Live churches focus on people. Dead churches focus on programs. Live churches are filled with tithers. Dead churches are filled with tippers. Let me stop. I'll give me pause right there and say something else. Can I say this to all of you? And you know who you are. Can I say thank you from the bottom of my heart for your faithful giving? This year has been the most remarkable year in the history of our church in terms of giving. It is unbelievable. We keep looking at the weekly offerings and our eyes, we kind of blink. You know, we kind of blink. And say, what is going, what's going on is that God's people are being faithful in their giving. And I just want to thank you for that. God bless you for doing that. So live churches are filled with tithers. Dead churches are filled with tippers. Live churches don't have can't in their dictionary. Dead churches have nothing but. Here's a, one of our mantras from the early days. Risk, fail, adjust, adapt. How does that go? Oh, thank you, honey. Risk, fail, learn, adjust. Risk, fail, learn, adjust. The reason we had that is because we were constantly making mistakes. We didn't know what we were doing. We're just trying to reach people for Christ. I mean, we'd give out water, we'd pay them, we'd give them cookies, we'd do anything. We didn't have no idea what we were doing, but we were doing something, right? And we'd always risk, fail, learn, adjust. And anybody that's so afraid, oh, I don't want to make a mistake, I don't want to do anything, we need to constantly push the envelope. We spend an enormous amount of money on Easter. Some people have said, and they have the right to ask this question because it's your money. Are you sure this is the best value for our money? I think this year we spent $8,000 making Easter happen. And with the advertising and everything, I'll tell you why it matters. On that Sunday, when 30 plus people raised their hand to receive Christ, the following Sunday, we had over 30 people that came to our church from Easter. That's why it matters. It matters. We will spend money for that rather than new carpet. Now, hopefully we'll get new carpet someday, but we will do that. That's what we are called to do and to be. So God says, okay, you look alive, but you're dead. And then he talks about, okay, how can we correct that? And then he goes into a, a beautiful series of verbs that talks about how he can, we can correct that. Listen to uh, the verses 2 and 3. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is almost dead. 
I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. He says, wake up. Wake up. Now, when Jesus used this word, uh, it's interesting, that word phrase was used twice, once by Jesus, once by Peter, when they raised somebody from the dead. Now, I don't think any of you recently have raised anybody from the dead, so you may not understand what that means. But they literally raised somebody from the dead, Jesus did, and Peter. And they did. They used the phrase, wake up. You're dead. You're not dead anymore. Wake up. Now, that gives me hope for the church of Jesus Christ. That gives me hope for any church in our community. It gives me hope for our church that even those who have fallen asleep can still be awakened by the Spirit. That means any of you that feel like you have fallen asleep, you can be awakened by the Spirit that gives me hope. Wake up. That word wake up is used throughout the New Testament, and it's kind of a wake-up call. Uh, it's like this, this sharp staccato commands uh, in the original Greek. Uh, Ray Stedman says it this way. Uh, they are like a slap in the face, a splash of cold water, a sniff of spirits of ammonia, a shout, an urgent cry of alarm. Wake up. Wake up. Paul's words to the Ephesian church said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, it's not too late. You've got to get alive. You've got to come awake. You've got to do that. And we have two people in our church. One of the first service, I think, yep, there he is back there. Uh, two people in our church that I've given permission to sleep through the service. And those of you who are chuckling, I, I didn't give it to you and you're not going to get it, so don't... <laughs> you know, don't ask me. The reason I give permission to two people to sleep, they can sleep through the service, is they both work all night the night before. Every Saturday they work all night. And then they come to church. You know, most of them say, oh, God understands. Well, of course God would understand, but you know what? Sometimes you just got to be in God's house with God's people. Now, some of you don't go to church because you stayed up till one in the morning watching reruns of 24, you know. You know. Do you know what I'd say to you? Wake up! You know, go to bed at 10 o'clock and wake up at the right time. Wake up. It's what Steve said last week. It's the tap. It's the Holy Spirit saying, come on. It's not too late. Be watchful. Be alert to the Spirit. Now that phrase, be watchful, literally means chase away sleep. Spiritually, chase away sleep. Oh, I'm feeling groggy spiritually. Chase it away. You chase it away by getting back into the Word, by getting back into prayer, by getting back into church. You chase away sleep. Wake up. The harvest is white. The workers are few. People are desperate to know Jesus. And our church is one of those churches that says we will do anything in our power to reach one more person for Jesus Christ. Now, on any given Sunday morning, when we pray again at 815, um, we pray for the churches around us. We pray for the Baptist church over here. Pray for the Presbyterian church over here. Christian, uh, Chandler Christian, Cornerstone. Uh, and other churches around it, and we pray for them, and we pray that the power of God would fall upon them, that the gospel would be preached, and that people would be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. Why do we pray for those other churches? Aren't we in competition with them? Are you kidding me? Eight out of people in Chandler never go to church. Never. We, don't, we need 20 more churches in this two-mile square area. The, there's, the workers are too few. The field is white into harvest. People need Jesus, and we are going to be one of those churches that are awake and alert and standing firm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he, said, he goes on and says, here's another thing we're supposed to do, strengthen what remains. Now he's talking about those, that, that, that minority of people 
that group of people, that remnant of people that have held on to the gospel, that have not gone to other religions, uh, that have not become complacent, that have not got so wrapped up in their money and their wealth that they forget about God. He said, there have been some of you who have held on, and this is a commendation. He said, and I bless you for that. I know it's hard in your society to, to not get caught up in, in materialism. I know it's hard. Uh, in Sardis or in Chandler. I, I know it's hard, but you can do this. You, you strengthen what remains. You strengthen those people. They get back into the Word. They grow in their faith. You get a mentor. You get into a discipleship class. You get into a grow group. You grow your life. You strengthen what is in you. Now, the word strengthen, this is really great. It comes from the aorist imperative verb in the Greek language, and it means to make stable or firm up. And the aorist imperative carries an urgency with us. It means do this before it's too late. Please hurry up and do this before it's too late. Strengthen that core in your life, that spiritual core. Strengthen your life. Strengthen the body of Christ. Those believers who are still uh, sharing the good news of Christ, strengthen that group of people. And do it now before it's too late. And then John goes on and says, go back to what you, or Jesus goes on and says, go back to what you heard at first. It's what we talked about in Ephesus uh, several weeks ago. Uh, remember your first love. Remember when you first fell in love with Jesus. Remember when you first fell in love with your wife. Remember when you first fell in love with God. Remember those moments when you were so passionate about Jesus you couldn't contain it. Remember those times. And he says, don't just remember those, but go back to those times. That's the next phrase. Go back to what you heard at first. Remember your faith. And he says, hold firmly to that faith. How do you hold firmly to that faith, to that when everything around you is saying, go this way? How do you hold firmly? You do it through holding on to the Word of God, holding on to the church of Jesus Christ, holding on to your personal, devotional, spiritual life, holding on to all of those things that will make you strong. Hold firmly, hold fast. And then he says, repent and turn again. Steve talked about that. In fact, every one of the churches except two, he talks about repenting and turning again. And you know what repentance means. It means to turn away from sin and turn towards God. Change your mind, turn away from sin, turn towards God. That's the commendation. You have not soiled your clothes. Some of you have not soiled your clothes. Some of you are still walking in the Spirit. Some of you have not sold out to religion or sold out to materialism or sold out to complacency. Some of you have not soiled your clothes. Let me tell you what that's referring to. Uh, in the ancient church, churches, you know, 2,000 years ago, all of these pagan churches, what's interesting is that those pagan churches had a uh, kind of a code of dress. Not all of them, but most of them had a code of dress. And when you went to the uh, uh, temple of Artemis, for instance, you know, and there was all this temple prostitution, all these things. But when you were to go to the temple, you were to go dressed in your finest clothes. Shoes match your purse, guys. You know, your, your shirts and your pants, your dress looks good. You've got a hat. You're dressed in your finest clothes when you go to those pagan gods. And what Jesus is referring to is, is uh, when you went to those pagan uh, uh, temples, uh, you were never allowed to wear white. Don't wear white. If you wear white, you have to leave, okay? Because that, you know, we don't want to deal with that. Jesus said, some of you have not soiled your clothes. Some of you are still wearing white. Now imagine this. There will come a day when, and maybe not too far in the future, when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, wearing a white robe, will stand in the presence of heaven and gathered around him will be millions upon millions, maybe billions upon billions 
of Christ followers and lovers of God from all eternity. And all of them will be wearing white robes. People from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, from every color of skin will all be standing around the throne of God and they will be worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus said, for those of you that persevere, for those of you that do not soil your clothes, for those of you that do not go to those foreign religions, for those of you who are not complacent, for those of you who have held on to your relationship with Christ instead of religion, to you, you will stand before the throne of God. Listen to these glorious words in Revelation 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home, listen to this, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or pain or crying. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. That's his promise. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. And all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Isn't that beautiful? I will be their God. And they will be my children. Can you see yourself in a white robe? standing before the throne of God with multitudes of other Christ followers from all time, standing before him and praising the Lord. He said, you have not yet soiled your clothes, a remnant of God's people. There is a powerful passage in the Old Testament, and I want to close with this. It's a story of uh, Samson, and again, for those of you who've been around the church and Christianity and the Bible, you'll recognize this story. Some of you, it'll be new, but you have heard the name Samson. Samson was a great Old Testament character, and uh, he was a man whose name symbolized great strength. He was the charming, lovable hero of Israel in the dark, dark days of their history. Great champion of freedom, strongest man alive, and he had all kinds of amazing feats of strength until... Uh, he was confronted by a woman, Delilah, and uh, she was put up to this task by the enemies to cut off his hair because he believed that his hair was, he was uh, strong. God, you'd have to understand kind of what a Nazarite is in the Old Testament, but his hair made him strong and powerful, and uh, he always never wanted to cut his hair. So Delilah cut his hair. And um, a few moments or a few days after that, when he went to do a, a mighty feat of strength and power, we hear these words from Judges chapter 16, verse 20, some of the saddest verses or some of the saddest words in the entire Bible. And there's what it said about Samson. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him going on about his business, being religious, being strong, doing all the things that he thought. And after a while, he just, just didn't even pay attention anymore to the fact that God was no longer in his life in this powerful, intimate way. Some of you here this morning um, 
Maybe you've never experienced um, what I've been talking about, a personal relationship with Jesus. Some of you maybe have never come alive spiritually through Christ. Well, this morning, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that if you've never done that before. But let me speak for a moment to those of you who are Christ followers, and this is all of us who have been in this category if we're not now, and it's this. Have you allowed riches or just not caring or any other thing get in your way of God? Where there have been something else that has replaced that passionate one-time love for Jesus, something, money or people or circumstances, something where once you were alive but now your heart seems to be dead. For those of you who are in that category, in a moment we're going to have a time of prayer and you just need to talk to God. You need to ask your Heavenly Father to forgive you and to come into your life in a way that is so powerful and so real that you are just like you were when you first came to Jesus. So would you bow your heads with me now, asking that each one of you would just simply just forget those things around you, even the people around you. Just recognize yourself wholly and purely in the presence of God. And again, for those of you who belong to Jesus, but maybe you have forgotten what that love is like, I, I pray that you would just in this moment take a moment to say, Lord, forgive me. I repent. I turn back toward you, and I, I want God to be in my life in that powerful way once again. But then I would like to speak to those of you who have never said yes to Jesus. You've never made a step to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible also says that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And those two verses come together in a prayer that goes something like this. And if this is your prayer, pray it with me. Not out loud, but in the quietness of your own heart. Dear Jesus, I need you. I don't believe I've ever been alive in my spirit, spiritually alive. And by faith, even though I only have a small amount of faith, by faith, I invite Jesus Christ to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. I say yes to his promise of salvation. I say yes to his promise of forgiveness. I say yes to his promise of eternal life. I say yes to Jesus. Be my Lord, be my master, be my savior, be my friend. And I pray this in his name. Now with your head still bowed and your eyes closed, I would just like to ask if there are those of you who did pray that prayer, I would like to know that so that I can pray for you this week. Uh, no one else is looking around, but in a moment I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And when you raise your hand, would you look up and look at me so that I can see your eyes. So if you prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand up right now? So God bless you. Yes, God bless you, honey. Others? Yes, God bless you, honey. Any others this morning? Yes. Father, this is truly holy ground. darkness turns to light, when death turns to life. I pray, Father, that the new life of Jesus would come into these who have raised their hands and have prayed this prayer of faith. And Father, for all those of us who belong to you, may our lives be so filled with Jesus. May our robes be so clean and white. May our hearts be so in tune with the Father 
that we live a life that is worthy of the calling of one who belongs to Jesus. Thank you, Father. Speak to us, minister to us. And thank you, Father, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.